I'd encourage you sometime to go through, even devotionally, it would be helpful to just get a copy of the Baptist Faith and Message and just look at and read the verses that accompany all these different articles. And it helps you get a foundation, helps you to understand things a little more clearly. So I just want to mention that as we get going, because this week, again, I'll just be giving you tons of information again. And uh, we're running through this thing pretty quickly in order to get through it. But I do want you to know that there's all of this is grounded and, and found in God's Word. It's not just a confession of man. All of it is brought directly out of, word, out of God's Word. And you can even hear that in some of the language, I think, of the confession itself, of the statement of faith. All right, so we're going to start with the church today. And this one, um, our statement about the church, is going to probably, we're probably going to spend the most time on that one this morning. And then the other two statements um, we'll move through pretty rapidly. But this one I'm going to read to you. And then I have seven different points about the church that I want to share with you all. And um, this is important. This is really one of those places that's practically very important for us. As you remember that we're trying to discover in this class, part of the reason that we're doing this is so that all of you have an opportunity to hear what it is that we actually believe here at our church, the things that we actually hold to, and what makes us a Baptist church, what makes us the church that we identify as. Those things are important. A lot of times I'll talk to folks um, and we'll mention something in passing, and, and people will say things to me like, wait a minute, I, I never knew that, or I, I didn't grow up like that, or I didn't know we believed that, or is that really what our church believes, and things like that. And I say, yes, it's important that we know what we believe, and particularly about the church. I, I've told this story before, so I'll give you the short story, because it's always such a good point. I had a guy in my first church He was a well-meaning guy. I loved the guy. He was a great guy. But he had a tendency during every Bible study that we had on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights in a small group like this, he he had a tendency to find a way during a Bible study to always bring up other churches. And he would always bring up, you know, like uh, those Methodists or those Presbyterians or those Lutherans down the street. And he he would always find a way to sort of throw out some criticism of somebody else. And at one point... I had a whiteboard like this behind me and I had a bunch of stuff written up on the whiteboard. And at one point I just stopped and I erased everything on the whiteboard and I said, all right, let's just stop for a minute. And I wrote down Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran up on the board and I said, now let's have a little exercise here. Tell me what's the real difference between these guys. And that's the reaction that I got. It was just silence. And I think that a lot of times we... We have prejudices or, or under, misunderstandings or we, we have preconceived notions about what other churches are or what we are that aren't grounded in anything other than just assumptions that we've made or things that we've heard or, or something that we heard on the radio or another pastor did. So, so I want us to talk about distinctives today that, that make us the kind of church that we are. So I'm going to read through the statement and then like we've been doing, I'll read through the statement and then I'll circle back around and I'll point out the key things that I want you to notice. So here it is. Article 6, the church. The New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by His laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by the Word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. 
While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed for all the ages, believers from every tribe, every tongue, and people, and nation. So that's a lot. The last little statement about the New Testament church speaks also of the church as the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, includes all redeemed people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's just a statement about the universal church or the invisible church, as sometimes it's called, or as it was in the Apostles' Creed called the Catholic Church, which just means the universal church, all of the church, little c, Catholic. Big C, Catholic, is the church in Rome. Little c just means the universal church. So we do affirm that, but specifically, most of that statement had to do with local churches, local individual congregations. And so I want to start with the first thing. So every Baptist church is autonomous. and We all know what that means, right? Autonomous just means, literally means a law unto yourself. That's what autonomy means. Auto, self, nomos, law, law unto yourself. So it means that every church governs itself. And so in Baptist life, in every type of Baptist life, not just we're a Southern Baptist church, but in every type of Baptist life, every church is by nature, by nature, independent. Now, you've heard of independent Baptist churches and Southern Baptist churches and Primitive Baptist churches and Missionary Baptist churches and American Baptist churches and Northern Baptist churches. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of churches, and some of them associate with different groups, and we associate with the Southern Baptist Convention as our denomination. But by nature, every single Baptist church is its own thing. There's no governing body outside of the church. We're an autonomous, local congregation. The highest authority in this church is you. There's no director of missions that has authority. There's no denominational head that has authority. There's nobody down in Columbia at the state convention offices that has authority in the church. It all sort of works backwards from the ground up in Baptist life. Everything happens at the local level. And so we're an autonomous church too. It consists baptized uh, believers. Now, this is important because we believe in Baptist churches that the membership of our churches should be regenerate, that every member of a church should be a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ. So unlike in other churches where you can be baptized as an infant, or you can go through a confirmation process or something, and then at some point you're welcomed into the covenant family, you're allowed at the communion table, all those things can happen without, without actually making a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In a Baptist church, we say, no, every person who's part of the church needs to be a confessing believer in Jesus Christ, and they need to be baptized. Those two things tie in, and we'll sort of I'll circle back around to this in a few moments, but just to remember that we say not just that every church is an autonomous local congregation made up of believers, but we say that every church is an autonomous local congregation made up of baptized believers. That's important, too, because we believe in Baptist life that the public confession of faith is baptism. That's how you publicly know. That's how you go public with your faith. Like, there's no secret believers in Jesus we believe that everybody should go public with their faith 
in one way or another that they need to proclaim it to other Christians. Other Christians need to affirm it. And we go public, we confess our faith. And so that guards our regenerate church membership. Third, New Testament church observes two ordinances. Now, again, we'll, we'll, the next statement is on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I don't want to get there too, too quickly before we get there. But when we talk about ordinances in the church, you, you might notice, or maybe not, maybe not, depending on what background you came out of, that we don't use the language of sacraments in Baptist life. We don't talk about sacraments. We don't believe in sacraments. Sacraments, uh, for instance, if you believe that baptism is a sacrament, what you're saying and by using that word is that in some way, depending on what view you have, it could vary, but in some way, if it's a sacrament, that means that God is actively imparting grace to you through the act that you're taking part in. The same way with communion. If it's a sacrament, that God is actively doing something in there to impart grace to you through the sacrament. Now, different denominations and in, in Roman Catholicism takes that to a whole different level where keeping the sacraments, I believe they have seven, keeping the sacraments will, will actually, that's how you secure your salvation is by keeping those things. But for us, we don't believe in sacraments. We believe that these are ordinances. And these are things that Christ commanded or, or set in motion in the New Testament. And then we observe them. The two ordinances of Christ are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we believe that a church, a New Testament church, one of the ways that you identify it is by those two things. Are they baptizing and are they observing the Lord's Supper together? So if a church isn't doing those things or actively pursuing those things, then we would say it doesn't qualify as a church. So number four, evangelistic. It said specifically that the New Testament church is seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, why is it important for a church to be confessionally evangelistic? Why would it be important for us to affirm that this is part of what the church is? Right. I mean, that's what the church is. I mean, it's, it's the vehicle by which God reaches the world with the gospel. He could have done it any other way he chose, but he chose to commission the church to go out into all the world and make disciples of men. So that's what we are. And so confessionally, and this is one of the things really that sets apart Southern Baptists in particular, and this is one of the reasons, I think, why Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the world and why they just sort of dwarfed the other Baptist denominations as they were starting and getting out, is that Southern Baptists have always been committed, without a shadow of a doubt, to evangelism, to missions, that we believe that every church has a responsibility to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. To as much as we're able, that's our role, that's that Christ has commissioned us to do. So we're intentionally <laughs> evangelistics. Evangelistic. We're intentionally evangelistic, missional and the way that we operate. And five, uh, we're governed democratically. We vote on things. You guys vote on things. That's part of what we talked about. I don't know if you remember in week one when we talked about Baptist distinctives, that our government is one of the things that sets us apart as Baptists. That, you know, we have bishop-led governments. We have elder-led church governments. And then we have congregational church governments, and we're a congregational government. Now, this is where these two things, remember, and I'll just point this out again. We dealt with this in the 
first week, I think. But this is where these two things matter. Because if the church makes the decisions about the church, if the church votes to call pastors and the church votes to affirm and appoint deacons and the church uh, ordains and the church does all those things, administers the sacrament or the ordinances, almost the sacraments, administers the ordinances, all those things, then it's vitally important that the only people who are part of the church doing this are actually believers. Because if you don't, if you allow, uh, and I, I, this sounds so ivory towerish, but if you, I don't mean it that way, but if you allow a bunch of non believers to make decisions for the church, then the church will pretty quickly cease to be the church. And it'll pretty quickly start going in a direction that's unrecognizable biblically. Well, that's what happens when we don't guard the regenerate nature of our churches. So we are democratically governed. Number six, we believe that. The officers of the church are pastor and deacon. We believe that pastors are interchangeable in the New Testament with the word elder, the word bishop, overseer. They're the ones who lead the church, have responsibility scripturally over the church, who, have, who will be held accountable to Christ for the church, all those things. We are primarily, the pastor's job is primarily one thing. Like, I have one role, one primary role, and if I don't fulfill this role, everything else, I am a servant of the Word. I preach and teach God's Word to you. Every other area of ministry in the church is the responsibility of you, primarily. Now, we're talking primarily, right? We're talking in ideals here, so... Primarily, my responsibility in the church is to preach and teach the Word of God to you and to pray for you. That's scripturally what I'm called to do. Your responsibility within the church is pretty much everything else. Once you're equipped for ministry, you do the work of the ministry. And so it's not the other way around. What often happens in church life is that all the work of the ministry becomes the work of the pastor, and the people just sort of consume and biblically, the work of the pastor is to shepherd as a minister of the Word of God to pray for the people, and the people are equipped, and they do the ministry one to another within the context of the church. And there's another officer within the church, which is a deacon. Deacons have no scriptural authority in the church in the way the pastor does. They are servants of the church. So they're meant to serve the church. In Acts chapter 6, where we believe that that office originated, Deacons were specifically called out of the body to do what? Do you remember? Yeah, to serve the uh, widows. Right, to specifically to distribute food. Specifically to distribute food. And there's no doubt, and the deacons, uh, we've been talking about the fact that we would like to draw more people into the ministry, servant ministry of the deacons, under, under and, uh, underneath the deacons or with, alongside the deacons. Because there's no doubt that the deacons were called to do that, but they were really just called to organize that, I think. Think of a church of thousands of people, and they call seven guys. Is that even possible? Right? There must have been that they organized the church and other people to do ministry. And so, but the deacons are there to serve the church, to serve and make sure that when the church gathers, the church is served properly and that people aren't neglected in the ministry of the church. And then here's one... We are complementarian. 
and our views on men and women in the church, and particularly the role of the pastor. And what that means is, while both men and women are gifted, this is what our, our um, statement says, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now, um, let me just say this. This isn't an issue of who's better. This isn't an issue of any of that stuff. We believe that God created man and woman absolutely equal in worth and dignity before God, absolutely equal. We believe that men and women have different roles in the kingdom of God, in the family, all of those things. And within the church, we believe that men and women have different roles. And I'll just say this. In the role of the elder, the pastor, the bishop, there is nowhere in Scripture ever where that role is mentioned and a woman is allowed to be in that role. It's just as simple as that. It's not because we're hateful. It's not because we're... um, Sexist is not because we want male domination. It's just because we're looking at the Scriptures and we're saying, what is Scriptural and what isn't? When Paul talks about this in the Scriptures, he appeals to it not on the basis of gender, but on the basis of order, that God's creation is orderly, that God has created order in His creation, and that part of that order is that man was created first and then the woman was created. And so the man, by the way, all throughout Scripture, just to say this and then we'll move on, all throughout Scripture, man's responsibility is not a domineering, heavy-handed type of rule over a woman. His responsibility is to sacrifice his life for his wife and for women. We're called to do that in the Scriptures. I think it's a, a, much, uh, a much weightier calling that's placed on the man to live sacrificially because we're meant to live as an example of Christ. So I just say all that to say that none, none of that is meant to be oppressive. It's just biblical. This is how God designed it. The same way that God designed marriage as between one man and one woman. I say, well, pastor, why, why wouldn't we just allow for whoever loves whomever to get married? Well, apart from a lot of issues biologically with that, the fact that the human race couldn't exist if that happened from the very beginning, the fact is that God created his universe in a certain way. He created man and female in a certain way, and he ordered it in a certain way. So it's not about being hateful. It's not about being unloving. It's about saying God created it this way. This is God's plan. He created it. He gets to decide. Will the potter say, or, or will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? I mean, it's his world. It's his decision. So, so these are the seven identifying marks of churches. All right, let's move on, unless there's another question or comment about that. So baptism in the Lord's Supper. Here we go. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, excuse me, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privilege of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. All right. So number one in that. Full immersion. So we believe in full immersion 
of the believer. And I should put that there too. We believe in full immersion of the believer. And if you listen to the language there about what it's symbolizing, then that makes sense and why we hold to that. Also, there's linguistic evidence in the New Testament that when we use the word baptize, it just means to put something underwater. Like the actual word itself means to submerge something or to immerse something in water. It, it, it may be somewhat vague sometimes as to whether you can draw, are they talking about that in that particular instance? But what it never means, and this is again where you take a passage of Scripture and you allow it to interpret other passages of Scripture, what the word never means is sprinkling. It never means that. It never means to sprinkle water or, or to do those things. So by mode, we say that it's immersion. We also look at, at evidence, descriptive evidence in the New Testament. For instance, like John the Baptist, when he baptized, where did he baptize? In the river. In the river because... There was much water there. The Bible said that he needed water. Now, if you could baptize without a lot of water, you could just about do that with any, any type of water. You could carry it in a bowl and sprinkle people, and you could sprinkle hundreds of people with the water from one bowl. But he went down in the river. We think of the Ethiopian eunuch. When he was baptized, he says, uh, See, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And so they went down from the chariot into the water. And they were baptized. Now, do you think that the Ethiopian eunuch was traveling across the wilderness with no water in the chariot? Right? So couldn't, couldn't he have been baptized by sprinkling if that was allowed? But instead, they stopped at the water, got out of the chariot, went down into the water. So we have descriptive evidence of full immersion. But more importantly, we believe that it speaks to something symbolically. And we believe that it speaks to the, the... Not only are we identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ... Uh, with his death, burial, and resurrection, but spiritually we're making a statement about our life and that the old person has died and been buried, immersed underwater, completely taken under the water, and then raised or resurrected in newness of life. So we believe in the baptism, full immersion of believers. So you don't do this without doing that. So this actually comes first and this comes second. So when a person believes, then the, the, the next thing that they do is they're baptized. And we believe that it's an act of obedience. We believe that we're commanded in the New Testament to be baptized. We see evidence of it. Jesus told the disciples to go and preach the gospel, make disciples, and to baptize them. So we know that that's appropriate for us to be baptized in the book of Acts. When people came to saving faith in Christ, they asked, what do we do next? And what was the answer of the apostles? Be baptized. So you were meant to be baptized. So we believe that this is an act of obedience. And I believe it's an important act of obedience. I know that there are people who would say, um, I mean, I've heard this countless times, more times than I can even think in the life of the church, that there are people who would say, I believe in Jesus. I, I trusted Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want to be baptized. I just can't do it. I'm just not getting up there in front of I don't want to do it. I don't think I need to do it. I've, I was baptized as an infant. I don't want to do it. I mean, we have people in our church who would say that right now. They would say, I, I would join the church, but I'm not going to be baptized. To which my answer is, well, then you can't join the church. Because if you're not willing to take this step, which is prescribed in the New Testament as an act of obedience, then we have problem. We have a problem confirming. Now, I'm not telling you that I know. But one of the ways that the church confirms 
and affirms faith in Jesus that a person is actually a believer is through the act of obedience and baptism. So, yes. Are you saying that they are not a believer if they don't follow No, I'm just saying that they have not been obedient. So that's so. Do I believe, for instance, um, some of my theological heroes are not Baptists, um, and some of them were baptized as babies or sprinkled as babies, and never followed Christ in this? Do I believe that they were believers? I do. I believe that they missed the mark here. I do. I believe it's sin. Yes. I don't believe it's a salvation issue though. But when we say it's an act of obedience and we're looking for evidence, public evidence that a person's a believer, they're confirming it and we're affirming it as a church. And we're doing that because our church structure and government demands it. We have to know that people are regenerate. Otherwise, the church itself could fall apart. All right, number three. We touched on this already. That It's a symbol, not a sacrament. It's an ordinance, not a sacrament. This isn't something where God is imparting grace to us, where he's in a, in a uh, special way touching our lives with grace, causing us to grow up more, something like that. We believe that this is symbolic in nature. It symbolizes, it's an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith. That's how our statement of faith puts it. It's symbol for, and this ties to here, and then to hear, but that this is a public profession, public profession of faith. This is the way that we believe a believer makes a public profession of faith. I grew up in Baptist church my whole life, and for most of my life, I thought that the way a person made a public profession of faith was that when we sang just as I am, you came down the aisle, right? And it was common, and I say this sort of joking, but really seriously, it was common for me, and this may have been your experience as well, if you asked somebody, when did you get saved, the way that they would respond almost all the time was they would say something like this. Well, I went forward when I was nine, or whatever, because we so identified that with a public profession of faith. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling people to respond to the gospel. That's biblical. I want you to respond. I want you to respond. Every week when we're closing the message, I try to challenge you to respond to what you've heard. Respond to God's word. But the act of walking an aisle or signing a card or praying with a deacon, um, those aren't necessarily biblical things. They're not necessarily wrong things either. But the public profession of faith in the Bible is baptism. That's how a believer publicly confesses Christ is by being baptized. We believe that's the public confession of faith. That's in our statement where it says it's a testimony of faith. That baptism is a testimony of faith. And then five, it's the prerequisite uh, to church membership and Lord's Supper. So we don't believe that you come to the Lord's Supper table unless you've been baptized confirming your faith publicly and the church has affirmed your faith. And think about all those things. And this, uh, we don't have time to do this, but think of all those things in relation to what Terry mentioned, the church holding a person accountable, the church being able to discipline its members, us placing ourselves under the accountability of a church body, all those things, all those things tie together. So we don't, 
allow people to become church members unless they've confessed Jesus as their Savior, they've been baptized. We also don't allow people to take the Lord's Supper. One of the ways that a church, um, again, sort of publicly identifies itself as a church is through the taking of the Lord's Supper. So we believe that it's integral to that as well. All right. Lord's Supper. We'll do these quick, and then we're done. Okay, moving on real quick. The Lord's Supper. This one's short. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and of the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. I just preached about this two weeks ago and covered all of these things. And um, So if you have any questions about our view of the Lord's Supper for the sake of time, but also for the sake of a much fuller and better explanation, just go listen to the podcast online on the Lord's Supper and I'll explain all these things that we believe it's symbolic, again, not sacramental, that it, we take a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of Christ. Now, again, that's another place where we're just trying to be biblical, where we're just asking the question, have we been commanded in the Scriptures to, do, to observe the Lord's Supper for any specific reason? And I mean, just answer that question for yourself. Have we been commanded to do it for any specific reason? That's the only thing that we've been told, do this for this reason. Every other reason is, is, comes about from either drawing conclusions about other things in the Scripture, but nothing explicit. There's nothing explicit. And this is an example where we say the memorial view is our view, not because we think it's so much better, we just think it's so much more biblical. It's the only thing that the Bible says, the only reason to do it is because we're remembering his death and then it anticipates the second coming of Jesus. We believe that, that that's also an important part of the Lord's Supper is the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes, that we're anxiously waiting for him to come. All right, finally, the Lord's Day. This is Article 8, and uh, we don't have to spend, I don't even have notes on this one because I don't. I, it's easy to understand. So the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, it's the Lord's Day. It's a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the only thing I'll mention there is the allowance for us to be governed by conscience on the Lord's Day. So are we prohibited from mowing the lawn on Sunday? No, that's not a trick question. I mean, no, it's just we're not. I mean, this isn't Sabbath. This isn't don't, you know, this isn't make dinner the night before so you don't have to cook on Sunday. So, I mean, you can do that. You can throw it in the crock pot if you don't want to. But the idea is let your conscience govern what's appropriate for you on the Lord's Day. Um, you know, do some people have to work on the Lord's Day? Yeah, some people have to. Do some people decide that uh, as a from my conscious perspective, I can't or I won't. Yeah, they do. And some other Christians decide that I can live with this I have to take care of my family, and there are other things weighing into it. So the idea is that on the Lord's Day, we're commemorating the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we meet on this day. We should set aside Sabbath rest in this life. It's not Sabbath the way it was in the Old Testament, but I think it's appropriate for us to say it's a day of rest for us. We should rest we should pay special attention to Christ on that day. We should think through what it means for us. There should be spiritual activities. There should be gathering of the church together for worship. 
for proclamation of God's word, all of those things. But ultimately, outside of those things, let your conscience be your guide on the Lord's day. Our, our, our confession of faith allows for that.